0: to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. In 1989, Time Magazine pronounced, Feminism is dead. It seemed a mainstream culture that the conservative era, marked by Reagan and Thatcher, had killed the lingering energy that began with the rise of second-wave feminism in the 1960s. And yet, as Rebecca J. Buchanan notes in her new book, Writing a Riot, Riot Girl Zines and Feminist Rhetorics, a group of girls and young women were about to start making their own waves. We now call them the Riot Girls, after one of the zines that they created of the same name. In 1991, Molly Newman and Alison Wolfe were members of the punk band Bratmobile, and Wolf explained why they chose the name. We had thought about Girl Riot, and then we changed it to Riot Girl, with the three R's as in growling. It was a play on words, and also a kind of expression about how there should be some kind of vehicle where your anger is validated. That growl started a movement, of youth culture, of music and print culture, of political activism, and of a new punk feminism that thrived in the 1990s and has remained a lasting influence on how we think about women music and culture buchanan takes us into the world of the riot girls through their own creations the zines that they wrote published and circulated to understand who they were what they were about and why magazines like time were so wrong rebecca buchanan welcome to the new books network
1: Hi, thanks.
0: It's good to have you here. Thank you. Well, so you have a new book, Writing a Riot, Riot Girl Zines, and Feminist Rhetorics. And I'm looking forward to talking about it. But before we even get to it, um, as scholarly as this title might sound, there's a real personal history behind it. So can you tell us a little bit of what led you to the project?
1: Sure. I started... I'll try and give a truncated history, Um, but I was writing zines and really involved in sort of zines and writing and punk in high school and college and then sort of moved away from it and got to graduate school and was in a class on girls and writing and said to my professor, I really want to look at zines. I really want to look at girl zines. And she's like, go for it. And so I started down that road writing my dissertation. And I finished that and um, came to the position that I'm in now teaching. And one of the colleagues that I work with said to me, I have this pile of Riot Grrrl zines. I used them once. Do you want them? And I'm like, sure, I'll take them. And in taking them and getting them from her, I really it brought me back to where I had been when I was 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, um, back to those times and really got me thinking about, like, what was it that engaged me in this space? I really wasn't involved with Riot Girl, but because I grew up in Minnesota, I was really involved in sort of this Minnesota punk scene, but also the writing that was going on and the zines and things that were going on but it made me really connect back to that and think about what was it about these? What are, um, what were young women writing and how did it sort of start to like tell a history?
0: So that's what I wanted to establish right off the bat that on the back, there's this very august, you know, uh, description of your biography, Rebecca Buchanan is associate professor of English and director of English education at Western Illinois university, but it should start out former punk rocker, Rebecca Buchanan. <laughs> Which is to say one of the wonderful things about the book is that you're writing from a personal history and having that inform what's going on um, in your scholarship. And I think that gives it a very nice slant. It's kind of like intellectual memoir. Um meets you know the scholarly archive or something okay but if we don't know who the riot girls are and we don't know about the zine culture could you tell us just what these artifacts look like like what would we see when they, they were sitting on the table in front of you what were you looking at and trying to understand the importance of
1: sure this is something i always have to do when you're sort of immersed in zine culture you know what zines are um but often when i will go and give talks or do go to conferences unless I'm put in like a punk panel or somebody who knows what I'm talking about. I'm often put on um, new media. So everybody thinks it's online. So zines are basically little magazines that people create for lack of a better term. I think at the very end of the book, I quote um, one of the zine writers who talks about them as little pieces of art. And so there are ways in which people sort of put together Personal thoughts in the punk community, a lot of them were around what was going on with bands, interviewing bands, that kind of thing. And there's a lot of collage and images. And so zines have been around for a while, there's different arguments of when zines started and when they did not, you know, who started zines, how did they start, but the punk community really started in the 1970s, we had sort of a lot of people who went to art school. And in addition to that, the photocopier was really made copying readily available. So we had all these people wanting to sort of promote themselves and promote themselves outside of traditional magazines or traditional mainstream media. And so they started creating their own ways to do that, ways to promote their communities and do that kind of thing. And so they started creating these zines In the form that we see them. Well, in the early 1990s, a bunch of young women got together who were part of punk and said, We want to sort of promote women. We're sick of seeing men in the forefront of the punk movement, there's women who have always been in punk, women who are still in punk, and we want to get together and talk about that and share who we are and be a little more personable about who we are. And so they started writing zines about themselves and trading zines back and forth and became this sort of, this group of young women who were labeled as Riot girl um, and part of that punk scene. And so, yeah.
0: Oh, please go ahead.
1: Oh, no, I was going to say, and so it was, and this is a very sort of short history of that. Um, and there's many different histories of sort of how Riot Girl started. But for me, I feel that Riot Girl was part, really came together because of this writing, because of the writing, the ways that young women were communicating back and forth and who were really part of this punk scene and really sort of calling the punk scene out on um, much of the misogynistic things that were happening within the scene.
0: Okay. So, so yeah, tell us, I mean, listeners might have heard of oh, the riot girls. I remember that was this, this phenomena, this moment in the nineties, but can you tell us a little bit more about that movement? I'm particularly fascinated in the way that you, you see writing as pulling the movement together, because I, I imagine kind of the, the default assumption would be, Oh, that was, that was some bands, right? That there was this music scene. Um, but you show that it was much larger than music
1: right so the there's a number of different as i said sort of histories to riot grrrl um but often what happens is people start to look at these young women and then they remove them from punk and one of my arguments is that we have to put them back into punk and so in the early 1990s we had a sort of a very different space but we also had these young women and usually it's looked at by their the bands um, young women who were in the bands Mobile and Bikini Kill, and they were coming together in 1991, and they had gone to take a break from school in uh, out in Washington, and they come to Washington DC, and they were they saw a race riot going on, and they decided to get together and do something about that in Washington DC. So it was sort of during that summer that they gathered together. And wanted to sort of promote themselves. And these young women were already in bands. They were already writing zines. And so they sort of sat down and said, let's start meeting together. And because it was the early 90s and there really wasn't access to the computer, there really wasn't a way to sort of like create a text stream and ask everyone to get together. The easiest way to do that was through writing. And because zines were already sort of this established form of writing and communication within the punk scene, that was the go-to, right? So these young women started using zines, using their sort of meeting times to get together to sort of talk about and promote what was going on with them. And instead of writing just about the bands and the music, they also got really personal. They were writing about issues of sexual violence, sexual assault that was happening. They were writing about what they were seeing in the community. They were sort of gathering together to get individuals to talk with one another. And so one of my arguments is that they sort of used all these elements of punk that were sort of already there. The biggest one for me is this sort of do it yourself, come together and write element to promote one another and to get one another to sort of, um, hear what's going on and hear what other women in the community are saying that they normally wouldn't hear from.
0: So before we get into the, the content of the scenes, which are is just fascinating, um, tell us how this worked, right? These wouldn't be publications that you'd pick up at the, the corner grocery or something like that. So how are these women connecting with one another? How did the zines circulate? It, it sounds almost like a kind of coterie publication um, where People who knew how to get them were able to get them even as they were writing them.
1: Yeah. So one of the ways that they got around was through sort of word of mouth. So I'm involved in punk. I like this band or I go to this concert. I go to the show. I pass the zines on. Well, women were starting to see that usually what is passed on is a number of zines by other men or men promoting themselves. And so some women came together and also said, or some young women said, we're going to create our own sort of distribution site. So we're going to create lists of all the zines we find by young women who are involved in punk. And so they would just write up a list and then you could mail in for it. You could get it from someone. And so it might be that someone hands you a zine. It could be that, you are you get this list of like reviews of zines and addresses so one way I would get zines and I would get sort of paper and letters in the mail was just from you get like a list and then it'd be like I'd write someone and say hey here's 50 cents or here's two stamps can I have your zine or here's my zine let's trade zines together and so it was very much this um, culture uh, this male culture so you as an MAIL <laughs> Um, so, you, mm-hmm. you know, and to distribute back and forth. So, it'd become um, these ways in which we would write letters back and forth, and you'd get letters from one another. And in that would be the zine, in that might be other people's zines. And then within the zines, within the writing that these young women are doing, they are also giving information about other people's zines. So they might be saying, hey, read, you know, Sharon's zine. It's really great. Here's her address. And so there'd be lots of advertisements that people would put collage into I might collage and zine advertisements for my friend's zines. And so it would just gather that way. So it's really hard. Even today, there's a thriving zine culture, but it's really hard to determine how many zines are out there because we don't know, right? We have librarians who are collecting them and doing that, but it's really hard to know how many are out there because it might just be from the community that I'm a part of, the smaller community, or it might be from a larger one that I'm gathering more popular zines.
0: And you make the really nice point that that okay, so so this presents this problem, right? Do you have a representative swath of zines? Is your your sample correct? Um, you know th- that you know there are some archives such as. Um, the ones that you use for your your book. But at the same time, um, the whole point of the zines is that they are circulating outside of mainstream distribution networks, outside of mainstream culture, because they're trying to articulate voices and experiences that have been silenced by that culture.
1: Yes, right. And so it's really hard to sort of get a handle on that. Another hard thing, another thing that was difficult was that some people write zines, and they continue to write zines, right? So there's some, um, and I'm very interested in young women and and women writing sort of personal zines, which are called per zines. So they're writing about themselves, they're writing about their lives. So sometimes there might be a zine that someone has written just once, and that person has sort of disappeared. And I have no idea who she is, where to find her. Um, But there's other zine writers who started writing in the late 80s, the early 90s, and they're still writing today, right? And you can find those people in those zines. It also depends on sort of what zines other people collected because there's so much ephemera, because they are just read and then often thrown out um, or they sort of disappear if someone doesn't keep a collection and then donate it somewhere unless I have those zines, I have no way of getting them right. It's not like I can go to Amazon and order a bunch of zines. I mean, maybe you can now because who knows what Amazon has taken over. But you know, it's really hard to do that. It's really hard to know just how many zines are out there and get a hold of those. So it's sort of at the For my project, I was really at the whim of, like, the zines that were given to me and then the ones at the archives I looked at. And Barnard Zine Library really has an extensive collection and a wonderful collection. And they have a zine librarian there, and she keeps that collection going. Um, And then other places just get donations, and those are the collections that they have.
0: That's great. So I think this is giving us a natural segue into – your approach to these as a scholar, um, which is to say they have this very important social history. Um, They capture this moment uh, that took place in youth culture. And at the same time, you're making this argument in your book that zines are are crucial for academics and scholars to study because they – they reveal something that we wouldn't see if we were looking at different kinds of ephemera and artifacts, different kinds of of life writing. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the importance uh, for scholarship of the zine?
1: Sure. One of the things as I was sort of struggling or structuring my book, I was you know reading different scholars and I was looking back at Jan Radway's work and Jan Radway has done some really fabulous work and really important scholarship. And one of the things she argues is that we need to start looking at zines as studies, right? We need to look at zines as an academic space. Whether zine writers sort of wanted them to be or not, they really are this important space. And there's an important space for history. They're important space for many reasons. And so I felt that I needed to have or really start out my book um, with sort of grounding the zines that I were looking at was looking at in that space. And so... I call on Radway's work and some other scholars who um Alison Pipemeyer who wrote this wonderful book on girl zines and she's since passed away but she was doing some really great work on sort of this this feminist work and I was looking at their work and really looking at others who looked at zines as life writing so individuals who are Like the zines are the space where there's these personal testimonies, there's this personal documentation and that it's really important for us to look at and to examine that. And especially as a feminist and a feminist scholar, I find that really important to sort of see that space that zines sort of exist in this space where they're not written as scholarship. And yet they have this important sort of everyday history of what it meant for me, what it meant for these young women to be a feminist and to be a young woman during this time period. And it's sort of this capturing of that um, in a way that we don't often have access to. And I found that to be really important. And I think it's important to start to think about those things. Zine librarians are starting to do that sort of archive, like these artifacts as these important documents as well. And so that's sort of where I wanted to situate my work.
0: So so what did it mean? What did it mean for these these girls and women who were producing the zines at this moment? I mean, what what did the this culture mean to them? How did they articulate it? What did you discover inside of them?
1: Right. So I think there were a number of things. One of the most important things for me was that every day, how I got to see sort of these little things that happen every day that we often forget about. So for example, these are women, at least the ones that I looked at, who were involved in bands, who were involved in this punk scene. So what one of the things I loved was seeing sort of how they talked about some of them creating their own music or sort of functioning in those spaces. So, you know, <laughs> many people will start a band and then unless your band makes an album and gets big, we don't hear we don't un, we don't hear about like, you know, we're not reading um, these histories of a band that started in my garage when I was 16 and got done when I'm 18, right? Um, unless you're like the Beatles or the Stones or whomever it might be. And then we're reading those histories. So what I one thing I loved was sort of hearing about how they might've started a band or how the band rehearsed or what they did at a gig or what they did at a concert. So this sort of everyday history of this these um, non-famous people, right? And, and that that's important to sort of know how that works. So that's one thing. Um another thing I found really important and another sort of theme that crossed was how they sort of talk about um their life in high school or in college and and how they sort of view themselves in that space. So a lot of times, like, what does it mean to be an outsider for many of these young women, right? What does it mean to sort of not fit into this space? And then writing this scene really helps them find a space to fit into, right? So before we had sort of lots of social social networking and lots of ways in which you can find people who are like you, these zines were a way to connect to that, and to read on the everyday sort of like Mr. Smith was being a real, you know, jerk in class and you or these boys were, you know, being jerks or whatever it might be. And you get to read about that and hear what it was like to be a teenager at that time, at least for these young women, or at least the how they wanted to present themselves as teenagers, teenager. And I find that interesting.
0: So there was a, a kind of ability to recognize other minds and other psyches and other experiences that were like yours. Hmm. You you know, your book does not open in 1990. It opens with quoting President Trump. Oh yes. Um, <laughs> and so I am really curious. I and and I would love to talk about that if you're interested in it. That's but, fine. But I, I am curious. um So we have these these ways in which these girls and these women are articulating their experience before social media, Um, and and you as you yourself just said now you know you you can tweet you can find somebody on Instagram or whatever the social media app is of the moment. Um, Do you find anything qualitatively different about the articulation of the experience of of teen of of coming of age experience in the zines? that if we were to look to Twitter to see today's, you know, late teenage, early 20 something women, we, we wouldn't see. Um, Or do you see, Oh, now there's finally a place through social media for these voices to be articulated. And they they sound kind of the same. It's the same concerns, the same articulations, the same worries, the same outrages. Um, Or is there something qualitatively different? Like, no, when you look back at the scenes, there's, there's a different kind of experience or there's a different facet to it than we see now. in it's, it's present permutation in culture.
1: Well, it's interesting. Cause I've thought about this often, right? Like sometimes, especially with these personal zines, there's many sort of self pictures of self in there, that kind of thing. I think of like often in zines, there's your own sort of, their selfies before selfies, right? There are different things like that. When I wrote this, it was before, right before, or when I was, you know, as I was writing this and as I was doing this, doing the research definitely was before the Me Too campaign, right? It was before all of this. Um, And so these young women were sort of hollering in in the text, in the zines, you know, sort of hollering and yelling about things that we don't talk about. I think there's this, a bit of a turn, right, from that, that these young women are, what's most frustrating to me is that sometimes there isn't a lot of change, right? They're saying the same thing. So from the early 1990s to almost 2020, right, young women, so for 30 years, and and even before that, we see this history of young women saying that, we live in this misogynistic society, we live in this space where I this is the way I'm treated, and I'm not treated well, where men can get away, right. So in the punk scene, it becomes these, these guys who are in bands can get away with saying these things around women about women, and that's okay, and nothing happens to them. And so I think there is some similarities, one big difference, I think at times in the early 1990s and in these zines, the women can even be a little more aggressive, right? There is one, um, I don't know where, I don't remember where it is in the book, but <clears throat> there's one quote that I really love to use all the time, which is when Riot Girl New York, one of the women sort of, they were saying, what does Riot Girl mean to me? And she wrote like, we're the ones who bombed the World Trade Center, right? And it, this was like, weeks after the World Trade Center was bombed in 1993, she puts it in a zine, you know, doesn't put her name, puts initials. So really, nobody knows how to find that girl, right? Like, so there's a little anonymity in the zines that you can't have on social media, right? So if you do something on social media, and say something like that, someone's going to come knocking on your door really quickly. I'm guessing no one was knocking on her door in 1993, right? Um, so there's these ways that you can be anonymous on paper or in zines. And I think you can still do that to an extent in zines and on paper that you, even if you think you are on social media, you can't be right. But I think that a lot of the issues are the same issues, right? They're these same concerns that these young women are having and critiquing. They're critiquing popular culture. They're critiquing sort of the beauty myth they're critiquing all these things that are still being critiqued today. And sometimes that's really frustrating. It's sort of, it was, it's really frustrating. Like I said, yeah, like you said, I started in 2017, like that intro, like it was really frustrating when I'm trying to write this book. And then I watched an election happen with a man who is says, Really hateful misogynistic things, and that we as a country would rather have a man who is misogynistic than a woman be our president, right? If those are the two options that we have, and and so in some ways, it's, it was really frustrating to think about how so much has not changed. <laughs>
0: And one of the things I admire about the book is that it's constantly in dialogue with the present. So it's, you're not writing a history that's meant to be sealed off and left behind, but you're quoting authors like Roxane Gay about the nature of feminism. Um, and, and you launch an idea called punk feminism. What's punk feminism?
1: (laughs) Well, I think, and you know, I think think that there are other people sort of talk about punk feminism as well. Um, But for me, and you know, my definition and how I sort of think about punk feminism is this way that individuals who are sort of part of punk, they value ideologies and I could have a long, hard argument about like, is punk music or is punk something else? And I think punk is really sort of different ideologies and activities as opposed to music. But so there are these young women who value these ideologies of punk. They value the activities in punk and they use those to promote feminism within punk. Right. So they might use music to promote it. They might use the style that they create to promote feminism. Um, They use that sort of zines or those DIYs. So they find that punk ideology. They value punk and how punk sort of responds to culture. And they use that. And so that's how I sort of define punk feminism and think about punk feminism.
0: So why is punk a good medium for this message, right? What is it stylistically about the nature of punk if it's in some ways an ideological transport, right? What is it that it does that, say, printing a T-shirt, a button and a bumper sticker is not going to do, right? right. Or right. coming up with a slogan or running for city council. So what, what does punk give you?
1: Right. And I sort of, and I challenge punk too. I have issues, you know, I don't think punk is the end all be all of everything and I have issues with punk, but I see, and I look and make an argument for sort of three different things in punk that sort of worked really well for these young women. Right. So I looked at this idea that comes from Dick Hebdige and the work that he really did on punk that, um, Punk is this style, like style is important, right? So how we sort of produce, how zines sort of communicate with people through a certain style, how we use language and how language is used in punk, um, the co-option. So Dick Hebdige talks about how we co-opt certain, like punks co-opt the um He talks about like the safety pin, for example. And I think that that is sort of this style of punk that young women use. So one of my examples is a young woman who shaves her head, right? So has a sort of transforms herself with a shaved head. So they're using the style of punk to make a more political statement. So that's one. The next, I think that the Riot Girls use really well. And one of my... I don't want to say biggest issues with punk, but I'm not really sure what else to say is that punk really believes that suffering is important, right? So sometimes it becomes like, well, I've suffered more than you've suffered, right? That participants, they look at people sort of outside of punk having not has suffered as much as they have. And so I think that the Riot Girls used that really well, right? They used how they were treated by men within Riot Girls or how other women looked at them um, as a sort of way that they had suffered. And that was a commodity. That was a way to sort of sell themselves within punk. And the third sort of aspect of punk that I think Riot Girls use really well or that I focus on is this idea of like the shock effect like I talked about before about you know sort of Writing about the World Trade Center or young women using the word cunt or using the word fuck um, and, and using that vernacular and saying it in these kind of shocking ways. Right. So how can I shock someone? So you have lots of pictures, for example, of like this little girl handing a flower to someone with guns beside it. Or, or that kind of thing so how do we juxtapose different images and those kinds of things so i think that for me there are many other sort of ideologies of punk but those practices worked really well for riot girl
0: so so before we move forward take us back to this riot girl who says we're the ones that bomb the world trades that are unpack that Um, because that is shocking, right? And for me, the ideologies that, that we've talked about so far, kind of the empowerment ideology and things, like how do you draw, what was she thinking of? How did she make this connection? How did that make sense to her?
1: Well, you know, and that, I can't, I don't know for sure how it made sense to her, but for me, it was this really, this was like a really good example of how these young women were using Punk, especially punk at this time, right? Like, so we're just coming out of the Reagan era. Punk had really gone underground in the 1980s. Had become much more political. In some ways, had become much more violent, much more misogynistic, and and it, in places, right in different locations and and races. So this idea of being able to say like, "Screw you," you know, I'm going to tell you that we're starting. This was a way to start a revolution, right? She wants people to listen to her. She wants to be heard. Um, she's positioning herself inside of a revolution so it's sort of this idea of like we're not here we're not just writing you need to look out for us I think that was one of the things we're going to take credit and, and we're going to we're not only going to like tell you what we're doing we're going to like mess you up if we need to and so I think this was a way to position themselves in punk but also position themselves as um, as something to pay attention to
0: as a as potential threat
1: yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah, yeah. Well, so as you get into these zines, right, you you see that certain themes start to emerge certain um, recurrent concerns. Um, and one of them that you've mentioned is sexual violence, both within the punk scene and within the larger culture. Um, but another one that, that might not come to the forefront right away for a listener is race relations, mm-hmm. right? That this is a, a concern. And you talked about the one of the origins of the riot girls is watching a race riot. Could you tell us a little bit more about how race figures into this culture and these artifacts?
1: Sure. So anyone who's sort of involved in riot girl and is sort of part of riot girl um, knows that there's a large there are many contested issues with race and how race played out in riot girl and in riot girl Zine. So if we look at the traditional narrative of riot girl, it becomes these, the, you know, Riot And Mimi Nguyen talks about this often. She has a really great article where she talks about this, but it's like sort of 1991 riot girl starts with this sort of race riot. And they see this and they want to come together. And then in 1994, or there is a, a group of young, you know, so Riot Girl is doing great and they get together and have a Riot Girl festival. And then there's some major issues with how young women talk about race. And Riot Girl just sort of dies, right? Like, so these white women sort of deciding to tell women of color what it means to be a woman of color. And I think that it's a little more complicated than that, right? that, um, what that does is sort of, for me, it lets the young white women, especially off the hook in not looking about how they really talk about race and talking about privilege throughout their zines and what they're doing. And so I think race is often looked at as the way that riot girl ended. And I don't see it as that I see it as I, I also talk about how I don't think riot girl is just a movement, I think Riot Grrrl is still occurring. There's different iterations of Riot girl, just like there's different iterations of punk. But for me, I was really interested in looking at not only what these writers of color were arguing all along who were in this scene and how they weren't heard often and listened to, even though they were making these arguments, but also just how much privilege these young white women who said they were sort of part of a radical group were making arguments that were really like problematic as well and so that's what i really wanted to tackle or look at with the race like how do we especially individuals who find themselves part of a more liberal um subculture not choose to unpack their racism and privilege and how does that work out and then on the flip side what are women of color for me and in you know the riot girls but what are these people of color what arguments are they making and that they've been making all along that haven't really been listened to
0: so if you were going to write an essay for some you know some place like Slate or Harper's or something like that that said, lessons from the riot girls <laughs> in in today's racialized America, w- what would you say? What what did they discover? What did you discover in looking at them? These voices right. well, weren't being heard.
1: One thing for me, one big thing is that, um, and and this comes from like bell hooks, and I quote bell hooks, and I think this is really important. Like she talks about how um black people think really critically about whiteness right because they're perpetuated by sort of racial thinking and otherness but often um white people don't want to do the same things right white people don't want to allow um people of color to think critically about whiteness and white people don't want to think critically about whiteness themselves so one thing i saw was that there was a great like that White folks have to step back and let other people critique them and accept that um, they can't control the the narrative of what other people say. So what people of color say about white folks, we shouldn't always be controlling that narrative. So one thing I saw with Riot Girls is that often the white Riot Girls were trying to control that narrative. Right. And this became really frustrating. And so I think one of the big things is you can't we, we shouldn't be controlling that narrative. There are some times where you just need to step back and shut up. Right. And then listen and and, and understand that that's OK for people to think critically about. you, All right. And so um, I think that often in liberal sort of subcultures, uh, people think that it's okay to um, always have their own story and sometimes you don't need a story. Right. Um, and that you can't be. And then also like whiteness should not always be at the center of the narrative. And so that was another thing that I saw often that um, white riot girls, even when they were talking with riot girls of color, wanted to make whiteness the center of their narrative and it, it shouldn't be. And that became really frustrating for, um, many of these young women. And I write about two, one big incident that happened. And I see this too. Um, and I think I call that section, the one drop rule where the zine writer who, um, decide who, a white woman decides that she finds out, uh, that she has a, um, a small part of her heritage is not white. And so therefore, she doesn't think she's white anymore. Right. So she writes about how she understands from the point of view from people of color, because now she is a person of color. And that is really problematic. Again, it situates and makes whiteness at the center instead of sort of stepping back and removing that. So those are, I think, some of those those maybe lessons if I were going to write something those are some of the lessons I might be talking about right like not or maybe I shouldn't be writing that right like someone who's not like I should be letting somebody else write a thing about what white people should write
0: yeah yeah that, that makes <laughs> perfect sense. <laughs> like I think you know we're, we're well I want I want to ask you I want to follow up on that thread that you said that you you think that um Riot Girls is continuing, and I want to hear where you think it's happening now, where you think these cultural energies have gone. But certainly we're in the moment where, you know, we're hoping to hear other voices, voices that aren't ours. And I think the corollary of that is that that some people need to shut up, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, the president, guys like me, white guys, right? <laughs> um, and so the, the place that silence and restraint and withholding plays in politics as well as, as voice and articulation and recognition um, seems to be very important. I hope you write that essay um, <laughs> that I have pitched for you. <laughs>
1: I'll give you credit. If you do. <laughs> okay, um,
0: and then I'll <laughs> shut up. Um, but but where do you see these energies now? If you think it's a, an ongoing event like punk, um, where is where does one find the riot girl at this moment?
1: Right. Well, I think we have, and I, I talk a little bit about this. So I think there are spaces we see this continuing. There are um, girl rock camps going on right now. So one thing, and one thing I found really frustrating is that. There's one woman who's starting to sort of collect histories of women in music, but the role of women in music, besides in pop music, it's really hard, right? It's really hard to find all female bands. It's really hard to find female performers. So, um, so even pushing on like women who have control, like control over their own records, right? Control over. So we have Beyonce has a lot of control, Madonna had a lot of control. I don't know if she has as much now. But these but but we can really probably I can probably name on my hand the women who we know who have a lot of creative control and have power in the music industry. So I think in one way, there's this push for getting girls involved in music that I think is really important, right? We've got, um, there have been, especially in Europe, there's a number of, they have sort of lady fests and these events where they continue to gather, women gather together, they promote sort of workshops, music, conferences, that kind of thing. Um, I talk about in the book periods for Pence, where if people don't know about it, it's like one of my favorite things that's happened (laughs) in the past, like 10 years. Um, but where, um, Mike Pence was still governor of Indiana in March of 2016. And he wanted to sign a new bill that had many limitations on abortion. And so women across Indiana started calling up his offices and leaving messages when they were like, bloating or what birth control they were using or when they were bleeding or having their cramps. And so periods of pants would just call up, you can go to their Facebook page. They're awesome. Right. But to me, that's very much sort of this, riot, This, this very much riot girl kind of thing where there's this shock effect, where there's this way to sort of push a political agenda. I see in, um, Most recently, the young people who are sort of pushing for gun the end to gun violence, right? So we see these sort of moves that I think harken back to some of what these the young people who are doing in the nineteen nineties, right? We young people always get a bad rap, but we've been saying old people have been saying the same thing about people under like twenty. For forever, right? It used to be TV that's ruining their lives. Now it's the internet. You know, who knows what it'll be in 10 years. But so I think those young people who are sort of getting together and pushing or their, you know, gun violence and gun control. I, I see a lot of it in the, uh, it's Pride Month, right, with Pride Month and with the LGBTQA community and the young people who are really pushing in those communities. So I think there's these elements that are really pushing through and coming through that we often don't pay attention to or we often choose not to pay attention to that. I think um, what's going on with the Me Too movement, with the, um Black Lives Matter, all of those sort of movements are starting to push for me in that right direction. And, you know, I hope that I'm waiting for and I'm sure it will happen hopefully soon, like young the dreamers and like that now with what's going on right now in these camps and with all these young people being separated from their families that I think that. There's going to be something, hopefully, my fingers crossed within the next, you know, few weeks or months that will come up with that as well. So these are those places where I see that sort of those things occurring now. Sure.
0: And this seems like, like, very honorable work for scholars to take on right? to document these voices, to make sure they don't mm-hmm. slip away um, to make sure that the, the importance of of these experiences are captured so that they become part of the record, um, that they don't become silenced. So right. I'm curious, now that you've finished archiving and capturing and, and portraying one set, where are you going in your next project? Um, ha,
1: it <laughs> i laugh because i i mean i love the zines and i love all of it but i was like i need a break from zines, and so i am actually looking at and this sort of goes in this direction but very differently harry potter folks so i'm looking i've been i've interviewed a number of people young people and older but people in their like 20s but also people in their 40s especially the people in their 20s i'm interested in who sort of grew up with harry potter and how harry potter is impacted um who they are as activists, as fans, as that kind of thing. So I, I there's some similarities, right? Harry Potter has got a huge fandom. So <laughs> Harry Potter is my direction at this moment. And Harry Potter, sort of that reading life and and how what... So with the zines, I was really interested in being writer, right? And what that means and how these people are sort of writing in this community. And with Harry Potter, I'm really interested in reading and sort of how um, reading had cre- like created for people... Um, a culture that they never thought they'd have. So
0: tell us, tell us a little bit more. That is so intriguing, and <laughs> you know that everybody listening has some take on Harry Potter. So, so how does the reading that they did growing up as these narratives were unfolding? Um, you know, the cynical view would be, well, it, it was just this commercial phenomenon. You know, it's children's literature run amok. How did it create a, a culture or something more than oh, just?
1: It's- <laughs>
0: <laughs> or is that the next interview?
1: <laughs> no, no, that could be, I can like talk a little bit about it. Like, um, you know, Harry Potter, it will, it will last year was 20 years. The first book was released in the UK. And like right now I'm sure in like, what is it? The twenty? So with, by the time this interview is on, it will be the 20th anniversary of the release of the first book of the United States um, because it was the end of June, you know, middle end of June. And it has become like Harry Potter for many, especially the young people who I've interviewed in, who sort of grew up with Harry Potter became this space where they could um, help them make decisions. It was a space where they could go to when sort of no one else knew what was going on. Harry knew what was going on. It became a comfort space. It became a space to sort of even learn about reading. So it was a sort of engagement space in reading, but also this culture. I have one girl who says she'll never know her life without Harry Potter, which I think is a really important, right? Like she knew Harry Potter when she was young, they reread Harry Potter, every, you know, reread it and reread it, reread it, and return to this space and this person and this sort of community that um, is really valued, right? The friends do Harry Potter. Everyone does Harry Potter. So I'm really intrigued by how, Um, And I think it happens with different books. But Harry Potter is a great like series, like, you know, people will probably talk there's other books that and series of books that people connect to. But for me, Harry Potter is a really great way to look at that. How do we make a connection? You know, how is reading this connection that goes beyond just reading those texts and you connect to other friends and people, but you also connect to like, how does it help you make decisions in your life?
0: Well, Rebecca, that sounds like a perfect subject for a New Books Network interview. So I hope when you finish the book, you'll come back and talk to us.
1: Oh, yes, yes, yes.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. And thanks for the interview.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Rebecca J. Buchanan, author of Writing a Riot, Riot Girl Zines and Feminist Rhetorics, here on the New Books Network.